Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, today is our final week in the Asking for a Friend sermon series. And in this sermon series, we have been addressing questions that Christians are often afraid to ask out loud. This is the fourth year that we have done this particular sermon series. In the previous years, we've answered, you know, interesting questions like, uh, how can I really trust the Bible? Um, You know, can a Christian also believe in evolution? Uh, How do I know if I'm really saved? We've addressed other questions as well, but if you didn't know, we took those sermons from previous years, we turned them into little booklets, and those booklets are available back in our lobby. You can, they're free, you can take one, uh, check them out. If if you feel like one would be a a benefit to you or to maybe somebody that you know, just go ahead and take one, and they're there for for you to grab. So those are based off previous year's sermons. This year, we decided to tackle three new topics And the topics that we hit this year are these. Topic one from two Sundays ago was, um, how should I think biblically about voting? Uh, Topic two from last week was, what if my friend or family member is same-sex attracted? And I just want to publicly say thank you to Scott. Thank you to Glenn Dewar for tackling those, uh, those subjects while I was on vacation. Guys, I learned long ago that when you go on vacation, give away all the controversial stuff to the other guys, right? So, uh... So today, um, I'm going to be dressing, addressing the, uh, the third and non-controversial topic whatsoever. Today's question is, should a woman be a pastor? Should a woman be a pastor? Um, on Thursday night, my family was having dinner, and uh, Johnny, my son, said at the dinner table, Hey, Dad, uh, what are you going to be preaching about on Sunday? And then my eight-year-old daughter, Liberty, who I had already told what I was preaching about, she said, Johnny, she said, uh, he's going to be talking about the ladies, right? And it was so funny. She, yeah, anyways, Rachel told me I would totally discredit myself if I did the hair fling. So I just, I just discredited myself. All right. So anyways, uh, today we're going to be talking about the ladies and pastoring. So before we get too far, um, on a little bit of a serious note, I just, I want to say this. Uh, I know that even bringing up this topic for some of you, um, it can bring up some difficult feelings. I know that it can be challenging right away. Um, some of you have been hurt by careless, manipulative leaders, people who have misused scripture, people who potentially have even been abusive to you and your family. And, um, you know, so, you, so you know, that may be your experience or even you could just, maybe you didn't have an abusive experience, but you might be thinking things like, oh boy, here we go again, another, another sermon demeaning the worth of, of women in our church. And if that's you, I, I just want to say three things. Um, first of all, I just want you to know, like, I've been in prayer this week that the Lord would help me in the way that I communicate to you this morning. Um, you know, I, I want to preach in such a way that reflects Christ. Uh, and I hope that the Lord will give you ears to hear um, what he has to say to you today. I, I also want to say right up front that the Bible teaches very clearly from Genesis 1 that man and woman, male and female, were created in God's image. They both have equal dignity, value, and worth in God's eyes, so let's just let that fact be established from the start. I, I also want to just ask that even if you find yourself struggling a little bit, um, you know, as we go through the sermon, I just want to ask you to hang with me till the end, um, and we get to the application, and by God's grace, I, I pray that you will be helped and the Lord will be glorified as we work our way from start to finish through this sermon. So just wanted to share that um, before we move ahead. Now with that being covered, I just want to kind of introduce you to the outline of today's teaching. So we're answering this question today and I want to answer it in three parts. I want to talk to you today about the relevance of the question, 
the answer to the question and the application of the answer. Okay, so that's our outline. The relevance of the question, the answer to the question, and the application of the answer. And so that's how we'll work through this. Before we even get into that outline, we've got to lay some foundational groundwork. I want to just kind of cover three things foundationally today. I want to start out by giving you a disclaimer. One disclaimer, one presupposition, and then one definition, all right? One disclaimer, one presupposition, one definition. Here we go. Here's the disclaimer. Glenn, Scott, and I have all had to say this. I don't have enough time to cover everything in the sermon today, okay? So just right from the start, there are, you know, there are going to be questions that you have. There are going to be other tangential issues that deserve to be addressed. I don't have time to cover it. Other books have been written about this. Full teaching and lecture series have been given about this. Um, and I've really tried to study hard both sides of the issue and formulate conclusions and various things. So let me just recommend to you two resources that I think would be very helpful. The first one is a book called uh, Two Views. There we go. Two Views of Women in Ministry. And that's part of the Zondervan Counterpoints series. You can get that book. It's, the way it's written is really good. It's like one person gives their view, then somebody kind of writes back, um, kind of confronting it, and then the original author gets to write back again, responding to those uh, questions or, or uh, counterpoints that are presented. And so it's really good that way. It helps you think it through. The second is a YouTube video series that's like 20 or 25 hours long. It's really long. It's called Women in Ministry, Everything that the Bible Says About It. It's by a guy named Michael Winger, which sounds like my dad's nickname. You know, like, okay, Michael Winger. Um, but it's been a really helpful teaching series uh, to listen to, and I would just commend it to you. They are heady um, at points, scholarly level material. They go into a lot more detail than I can today. I know you're going to have questions coming out of this sermon, just like you've had questions coming out of the other previous two sermons. And so that's why we decided to do the panel Q&A night tonight. So I just want to again remind you that you're welcome to come 6.30 p.m. tonight here in the church. We'll have our elders uh, as a panel answering your questions that you send in in advance before tonight. Um, and here's what I need from you. If you intend to send in a question, we need you to send it in before 2 p.m. because our elders want to be able to have time to give a thoughtful response to it. So if you haven't sent yours in yet, please send them before 2 o'clock today. Again, the disclaimer is I'm not going to be able to cover everything worth covering in this message. That's the disclaimer. Here's my presupposition, right? My, the, when I say presupposition, I mean something that's presupposed from the beginning. There's a, something that we are assuming to be true before anything else is said. And here's the presupposition. It's that the Bible is the final authority in our lives, okay? That's my presupposition. For those of us who believe this, you know, um, we believe that the Bible is authoritative over everything else. Opinions, as strong as they may be, are not the final authority. Experiences, as real as they may be, are not the final authority. Family, as loving as it may have been in your life, is not the final authority. Culture, as popular of, a, of, a, of a opinion may be held or as powerful as the culture may be, it's not the final authority. Academia, as well-educated, as influential, as well-respected as academia is, not the final authority. Scripture is the final authority on this matter. Therefore, Scripture is going to be the source of my answer. And here's the truth. I just admit this right away. I know that even in saying this, I'm kind of preaching to the choir because you, most of you share my presupposition. It's why you come to church week after week where, you know, we open the Bible and preach things that apply to our lives. Um, you believe it to be the final authority in your life, most of you. But there may be some of you here today who may not share my presupposition. 
You may not believe that the Bible is a final authority. Or you might say that other things are equally authoritative as Scripture. You may say church tradition, or you may say uh, church leadership opinions on things, or you may have all sorts of other things that you might put on the same level as Scripture. I'm telling you that I am preaching as if, not as if, I am preaching because Scripture is the final authority on this matter. And if you don't hold that opinion, we're probably not going to come to the same conclusion. But even if we do come to the same conclusion, I'm going to get there probably in a different way than you do. So I'm preaching from the presupposition that the Bible is the final authority. So last thing I want to say as a foundational point is we need to also cover a very important definition. A definition. I was taught in college in my philosophy class that in order to really make a strong argument, one of the best things you can do from the beginning is to define your terms. If I'm talking about this thing and you think it means one thing and they think it means something and I think it means something else, we're going to not really be able to have a meaningful conversation or debate about it because we haven't landed on a common definition. So here's a key word, right? Our question is, should a woman be a pastor? The word pastor needs a definition. And here's the definition that I'm operating off of. Pastor is the human leader, a human leader, who is responsible for overseeing and shepherding a local church, otherwise known as an elder. A pastor is a human leader who is responsible for overseeing and shepherding a local church, otherwise known as an elder. Now, we use the word pastor in our culture all the time. And we usually use it to denote a, a church leader who is, governs or oversees or preaches or teaches authoritatively in the church, right? But interestingly, as common as the word pastor is for us, you know that the, the English translations of the Bible very rarely use the word pastor. Some translations of the Bible never use the word pastor. The one time that the word pastor tends to show up in English Bibles is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, where it says that God has given some to the church to be pastor teachers. Some English translations of the Bible use the word pastor teacher. Other translations of the Bible, like the English Standard Version that I preach out of, it doesn't even use the word pastor. It actually it translates it as shepherd teacher. So why would some translations say pastor, and other translations say shepherd. Here's why. It's because in the original language, the Greek word for pastor is the Greek word poimen. And poimen is used multiple times throughout the New Testament. It's almost always translated as the word shepherd. Sometimes it's shepherd used as a noun. So like if you think of Luke 2 and the shepherds keeping watch over their field in the night where Jesus was, was born... Right? That's the word poimen. If you think of John chapter 10, where Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd, that's the word poimen. If you, um, so that's the way it's used as a noun. It's also used as a verb sometimes. So you can shepherd something. It's an activity. And the uses of poimen or, um, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the verb form of poimen, it's used in passages like Acts chapter 20 where Paul is speaking to the elders at the church in Ephesus, and he says to these elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, hey, you elders, I want you to oversee and shepherd the flock of God 
which he obtained with his own blood. You can see there, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, and you are to what? Care for. That phrase care for in the original language is the word uh, poimain. It's a, a form of the word poimain. It has to do with shepherding the flock. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 also does this. Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, and he says elders are to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight um, among them. So again, you see that this shepherding work, the verb shepherding, is to be done by who? By elders, overseers in the church. This is the biblical teaching. No one besides elders are told to shepherd the church. We, we think of shepherding a church flock as being done by all sorts of people. But the, in the New Testament, the only people who are told to shepherd the church are elders. And so since we've already established that shepherding is pastoring, to shepherd is to pastor, then no one besides elders are to pastor. So that's why I am defining pastor as the human leader who is responsible for overseeing and shepherding a local church, otherwise known as an elder. Now, here's why I wanted to take the time to define that term. It's because I am not answering other questions that you're probably going to be asking today. I am not answering the question of, can a woman ever preach? I am not answering the question of, can a, a, a woman serve in other leadership roles in the church, like deacon, or can, I, can a woman serve in other leadership roles, period? Deacons in the church, or chaplains in other organizations, or professors at universities. I'm not, I'm not answering those. I'm answering the question, can a woman be a pastor slash elder? Now, with that disclaimer and presupposition and definition kind of laying the foundation Let's press ahead. Let's get into our outline. Let's talk about the relevance, the answer, and the application of this question. All right, so let's start with the relevance. Three reasons why I would say this question is relevant for us today. There are other reasons, but here are the three I want to mention. The first reason is this. This question is relevant because Scripture is relevant, right? We believe that the Bible is God's Word. So if the Bible has something to say about it, that means that God has something to say about it, and that alone makes it relevant. When God speaks, we ought not act like anything that he said is irrelevant, right? So scripture is relevant. That makes this question relevant. Here's the second reason why it's relevant. It's because churches using scripture have come to different viewpoints on this matter. Viewpoint number one is what's known as egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is when uh, you believe that women and men have equal value and can therefore play equal roles in the home and in the church. The key word in egalitarian is egal, right? It kind of reminds you of equal. It's men and women are equal, therefore they can play equal roles. And all egalitarians believe, all egalitarians believe that women could be pastors in the church. Viewpoint number two is what's known as complementarianism. Complementarianism um, is the belief that women and men have equal value for sure, but they have different and complementary roles to play in the home and church. Different but complementary roles. So all complementarians will agree that women should not be elders in the church. There's, you know, there have historically been different viewpoints held within Christian churches when it comes to answering this question 
the two camps, complementarianism, egalitarianism, and even within the two camps, there are kind of sliding scales of like, you know, people who hold kind of sub-beliefs within those camps. But here's the thing. The beliefs within those camps have sometimes led to uh, the formation of denominations or splits within church denominations, which leads us to the third reason why this topic is relevant for us today. And the third reason of its re- for its relevancy is that The different viewpoints on female pastors are causing tension within our convention. The different viewpoints on female pastors are causing tension in our convention. So first of all, when I say our convention, you might not know this, but University Baptist Church is a Southern Baptist church. We are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We have been since the late 1960s. And here's the thing. In the 60s and 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention was... was, um, more egalitarian in nature in in many of its churches and its academic institutions. But in the 1980s, the Southern Baptists took a firm stance against women being in the pastorate. And over time, that caused them to revise their formal statement of faith, which is called the Baptist Faith and Message. And in the year 2000, um, a statement was revised in the Baptist Faith and Message to say this. And here's what it says. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Now that was released in the year 2000. Since that time, the Southern Baptist Convention has been slowly disfellowshipping from churches who continue to keep female pastors uh, in in the governance of their church. And so here's the thing. At this year's convention, 2023, Representatives are going to have to vote on removing more churches, one of which, which is making this really a highlighted thing, is the fact that Saddleback Church from Southern California is on that list. Saddleback is the largest Southern Baptist church in our convention, very influential. And this vote is going to come forward. We're going to have representatives from our church there, and we'll have to vote on it. It's going to be talked about in the news, in social media, and I'm sure it'll be talked about in our church this summer. So, you know, This is part of what makes this question relevant to our church. For these reasons, we believe this question is relevant. So again, what's the main question? The main question is, should a woman be a pastor? So we've talked about the relevance of the question. Let's now get into the answer of the question. Let's look at God's word. Let's look at scripture to answer the question. I want us to explore three different passages of scripture today that will help guide us in our answer. The first passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is where the Lord has given us uh, a list of qualifications that we should be looking for in the life of those who serve as elders in the church. Here's what I want. I just want to read verses 1 through 3. The scripture says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, again, that's the same as an elder, then he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, if you keep reading on the next several verses, there are other qualifications that you should be looking for as well. But these three verses give us enough that help us move our conversation forward today. What I want you to see about this verse on the screen is that there are two things listed here that are important to understand. The first one is this. One qualification to look for is that an elder must be a husband Right? He must be a husband. That assumes that an elder must be male. Okay? 
But there's also something else to notice here. It also says that he must be able to teach, right? So elders should be able to teach. Well, why is, why is that statement able to teach so important? Well, here's why. Because 1 Timothy 3 isn't just a standalone section by its own. It, it comes within the broader context of 1 Timothy. And in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, just before writing 1 Timothy 3, Timothy writes, uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he says this in verses 12 and 13. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So I know that this raises all sorts of questions right away, okay? Uh, what does it mean that a woman's supposed to remain quiet? Is that absolute silence, you know? Why, why are we mentioning Adam being made first? What does that have to do with anything? Uh, how does Eve being deceived tie in, you know? And, and hey, didn't Adam also get deceived and eat of the fruit? He disobeyed. What's up with that? Okay, lots of questions that can come. It can kind of seem a little bit complex at first. So What's our tendency when we read something complex in Scripture? Here's our tendency. We tend to just kind of ignore it or just move past it. I don't think we should do that because I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training and correction for our formation in righteousness. So we're not just going to skip past it. So what we need to do is to attempt to work hard to properly understand it. And sometimes the best way to properly understand a passage is just to kind of Remember the obvious stuff that's going on here. So what's the obvious stuff? Here's some obvious things. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul is giving instruction to Timothy about the church. Here's how you should set things up in churches, right, is what Paul is writing to Timothy. In other words, these are instructions about the church. They're not instructions about the workplace. They're not instructions about the government. They're not instructions about uh, academia or, or the school setting. Like this is, has to do with the church. So in the church, Paul is writing and telling Timothy, I forbid you from doing two things, from having women teach men and from have, letting women have, exercise authority over men. Now, for some that's very offensive, it's also just very straightforward, and I, I know it's not in line with popular thinking. And in fact, if I was hearing this for the first time, here's what I would be saying, like, come on, man, what are your reasons for this? What's your reason? And thankfully, Paul writes his reasons. He forbids these two things, and then he tells them why. If you look at verse 13, you'll notice that it starts with the word for, F-O-R. For is another way of saying because. Okay, in other words, Paul is now giving his reasons for forbidding these two things. In his reasoning, he appeals to the book of Genesis. Okay, he's appealing to the book of Genesis. And in the Genesis account, he, he lists two things. He says, okay, two reasons from Genesis. Adam was made first and Eve was deceived. Those are his Two things, hearkening back to Genesis. Now, I want us to go back to Genesis and read this for ourselves. I don't want to just make assumptions off of it. I want us to read this together. I really appreciate Scott and Glenn uh, taking us back to the book of Genesis in their sermons, answering, um, you know, from God's creation story uh, from the beginning. We're going to do the same thing today. So, again, let's remember the basics about Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, 
what do we have? We have the creation account in general. In the creation account, God created male and female, both bearing his image, right? Isn't that what it says? God created male and female. In his image, he created them, both of them. Now, Genesis 1 is about their relationship to the rest of creation. He creates male and female after he creates all the other things he's made. And then he tells man and woman to do what? To be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then he tells them to subdue it. So this subduing of the earth, this uh, mandate is given to males and females to bear God's image and subdue the earth. That's chapter one. Genesis chapter two, though, hones in on the relationship between the husband and wife. God creates woman from man in Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 is about their, God's design for their relationship together. So let's look at Genesis 2 starting in verse 7. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is the account. God's creating the first man, Adam. Now skip down to verse 15, if you will. It says this in verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So lots could be said about the creation story and, and this, but here's the one thing I want you to see. I want you to see that God made Adam first and gave him the instruction to not eat of the tree before Eve was made. Okay, Eve wasn't made yet. God gave this command to Adam. Now move on to verse 18, and we'll see God's creation of Eve. Then it says that the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So at least to some extent, the Lord has given the man, Adam, authority over creation, some leadership responsibility here. And it goes on to say, um, in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused, it, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Just as a little side note, I think this is funny. Some of you guys know who Martin Luther is, the great reformer. Uh, he led the Protestant Reformation. You know, he, uh, his wife's name was Catherine. You know, what he, you know what his nickname was for his wife, Catherine? He called her my rib. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Okay, <laughs> whatever. Side note. Um, so God... Takes Adam's rib, makes her, uh, verse 23 says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, here you have the creation story. 
right? This is focused on the creation of man and woman and their relationship together. And again, what I want you to see is that God made Adam first and gave him the instruction to not eat the tree, eat from the fruit of the tree. And he did that before Eve was made. So then after Eve was made, what would have been Adam's responsibility? To tell Eve what God had said. And that's how the act of teaching and Adam being made first are tied into 1 Timothy 2, where Paul gives his rationale. You know, don't have a woman teach or exercise authority of man. For God made Adam first and the woman was deceived. Now, God's design from the beginning was for the man to have a certain level of leadership and authority and to teach his wife what he had said. But remember, 1 Timothy 2 says that there's a second reason why women shouldn't teach men in the church, and that was because Eve disobeyed. She was deceived and she disobeyed. So again, let's read Genesis chapter 3 to see this unfold. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 2 when he says Eve was deceived. And then her disobedience occurred. And yes, Adam ended up following along too, so he's not necessarily off the hook. But this is what Paul is talking about. And as you guys know, if you've studied the Bible, then after Genesis 3, sin comes into the world and there's consequences for Adam and Eve's sin. And from verse 7 on down in Genesis 3, we start to see some of the consequences that God brings in place because of their sin. I just want you to see one of the consequences that God said to Eve, uh, the woman, Look at verse 16 with me. Genesis 3.16 says, To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So her desires would be contrary to her husband, you know? I mean, she's going to oppose him sometimes. She's going to oppose that, that leadership that God had established for him at the beginning. Like, that's part of the fall. Guys, can you imagine life pre-fall? Like, no marital conflict. Imagine that. Men actually leading without sin. You know, no, wives not uh, opposing. Like, th- this would have been a beautiful situation. But pre-fall, the husband was given that responsibility of a certain level of leadership and uh, authority and the responsibility of teaching his wife, and the wife would have never desired to go against it. That was part of God's good design back in Genesis. So with that good design in mind, let me now give you a summary of everything and a conclusion. Okay, here we go. Summary, conclusion. Summary. 
Genesis chapter 2 shows us that God's design was to make man first, thus giving him a certain level of authority, including the responsibility to teach his wife God's instructions. Genesis 3 shows us that one of the results of the fall is that the wife will go against her husband, uh, challenging his God-given authority. 1 Timothy 2 shows us that Paul uses the example of Genesis 2 and 3 to establish a principle for the church, and that principle is that women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority over men in the church. Okay, in the church. I want to be clear, in the church. Therefore, when Paul writes about the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3, Paul assumes these elders are going to be male, husbands of one wife, those leading their households well. And as we established at the beginning of this sermon, elders are the ones who do the work of pastoring. So, what's the question? Should a woman be a pastor? Here's the answer. No, she should not. That's the answer to the question. And I know that many of you are in line with that answer. I know that some of you probably don't like that answer. Many of you just may not prefer that answer. Here's, here's the thing, at least for me anyways. There's lots of things in the Bible that, you know, uh, at first I don't really prefer, right? Like I would prefer that God, you know, I would prefer that there wasn't hell. I would prefer that I, Jesus didn't tell us to pay our taxes, okay? Like there's a lot of things that I would prefer not be that way. But here's the, I just want to say this straightforwardly. Here's the thing. My role as a teacher, an elder, pastor, my role isn't to teach the Bible in a preferable way. My role is to proclaim the Word of God in a faithful way. And that's what I want to do today. That's what I've tried to do leading up to this sermon today. Here's the thing. My job also isn't just to get up here and teach in a faithful way. Part of my responsibility is to help us implement this in a biblically faithful way. So let's now talk about the application of the answer. Three points of application that I want to mention. Church family, first application. Let's remember that this is an important issue, but it is not a salvation issue. This is an important issue, but it is not a salvation issue. When dealing with any sort of doctrinal, theological issue, we, we kind of have to figure out what kind of issue we're talking about. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, has helped us by giving us this uh, kind of way to do theological triage. He says when you're looking at an issue, you basically kind of need to categorize topics into one of three categories. He says, look, there's primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. Primary issues are things that are essential for someone to be a Christian. You must believe these things in order to be a Christian. That's a primary issue. A secondary issue are things that are important, and they're important enough that churches may form denominations and stuff around them, but they're not as important as primary issues. And then there's tertiary issues, issues that uh, people hold differences of opinions on, but at the end of the day, nobody should ever divide over it. So we kind of need to figure out primary, secondary, or tertiary issues. I want to just say it. The, the issue of female pastors, church family, this is a secondary issue. You can be an egalitarian or a complementarian and still be a Christian. What you believe about female pastors does not make you saved. 
I have saved friends and acquaintances who don't share my complementarian view. They value Scripture, but they just interpret it differently than me, and I believe I'm still going to see them in heaven. Now, for me personally and for my family, based off my understanding of uh, the proper interpretation of Scripture, I would not choose to fellowship in a church that had female pastors. Not because I think they're all raging heretics. Uh, Rather, it's because I know I just interpret Scripture differently than them. And if we interpret Scripture differently on this matter, we're going to interpret it differently on other very important matters. So this issue is important. It's important enough for me to preach a sermon on it. It's important enough uh, for me to choose a church uh, for my family based on it. But as important as it is, it is not a primary salvation issue. Someone's views on leadership do not determine whether they're saved, and we should not act like uh, their view on that does. Now, second application. In our church, only men will be elders and pastors. Same role, again, when we talk about pastors, we're talking about elders. In our church, only men will be elders, pastors, but we will gladly encourage women to use their gifts in other ways. We will gladly do that. So I know other people are going to right away start to ask, like, well, what kind of ways? What kind of ways are, you know, permissible and which ones are off limits? Let me just list some things, all right? Can a woman pray or sing on stage? Yes. We just did that this morning. Uh, can a woman give testimony on stage? Yes. Can a woman uh, be involved in serving communion? Yes. Can a woman baptize another person in our church? Yes. Can women lead ministries in our church? Yes, as long as they're not authoritatively teaching Scripture to men in that, in that setting. So, you know, uh, we have a thriving women's ministry in our church. I love what's going on in our women's ministry. We have wonderful mentoring going on between women in our church right now. We have women leading our counting ministry, our fellowship team. We have women, uh, you know, leading our children's ministry. So these ministries are all being led by women with, with wonderful gifts, and we will gladly celebrate those in our church. But I know it's going to be on your mind. Like some of you guys are going to be like, okay, okay, but what about the other roles? What about roles like deacons in the church or adult Sunday school class teachers or growth group leaders, that type of thing? And I want to just answer this. Here's the answer. Since I've come to this church, since I've been here the past five years, our answer has been no. We have refrained from having women in those roles because those roles have carried with it a certain level of authoritative uh, uh, leadership in the church or um, teaching responsibility. But honestly, the elders are starting to look back at this again and say, okay, do we have this right? Are we, li- are we living this out? Are we implementing this well? And we know we have to land the plane on these issues, and we will land the plane on those issues. We just need some time and some patience from you. So thank you for how gracious you've been we just ask for you to keep that up as we continue to bring clarity. Um, I just, on a personal note, I'm speaking on, for myself now, not on behalf of the rest of the elders. Here's what I personally think it's generally fine for women to teach men outside of the church setting. Now, when I, and when I say teach, I mean teach the Bible or teach biblical things, right? For, I think it's fine for men to learn from women outside of the local church setting. So I personally am glad to 
learned from gifted female teachers in my own life. Every morning I listen to a podcast by a woman named Tara Lee Cobble who goes through something called the Bible Recap. Uh, In seminary, I read multiple books that were written by women. I greatly appreciate the book called Total Truth that was written by Nancy Percy. I I have um, had wonderful sharpening conversations with women in our church who just want to sit and talk doctrine. And like, it's been wonderful, and I, I welcome those conversations. How about people who give testimony like Johnny Erickson Tata, who is paralyzed her whole life, and now she goes and helps the church understand how can you trust in a God in a world full of pain and suffering? I mean, why would I be willing to listen to a woman in those types of settings receive teaching from her? Why would I? Here's why. Two reasons. I would do that because, first of all, it's not in the local church. It's not a church setting. And when Paul forbids a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he's forbidding that from happening in the church. And also, because outside of the local church, no authority is being exercised. Uh, It's not being assumed by the female teacher, and it's not being granted to her by me. So if I go to a conference and I listen to Johnny Erickson Tata teach about trusting God and suffering, I am not giving her spiritual authority over me, and she's not trying to have it. You know, and if she did try to have it and try to put me under church discipline or hold me accountable in some way or something like that, then that would be different. But I'm happy to learn from gifted women teachers in, uh, outside of the setting of the local church. Now, in our church setting, only men will be pastor elders. We believe that's biblically faithful. And we will gladly encourage women to use their gifts in other ways. That's our second application point. Last application. I know I got to wrap up. Last application Church family, our elders are going to do our best to implement male eldership with love and care. That is my heart's desire. We want to implement male leadership with love and with care. We want to do it like Jesus. You know, Scott and Glenn, these past two Sundays, they've both mentioned how we can fall on a ditch on either side of our issue at hand. We can fall in a ditch on either side of the the male uh, eldership issue. On the one hand, men can be totally passive. We can become like Adam, neglect our responsibility, blame shift. We can do all sorts of other things and not be spiritual leaders in our homes or in the church. And men in our church, that, we have to understand that is sin for us to repent of. Okay, that's one hand. We can be far too passive and neglectful of our God-ordained, God-designed responsibility in the home and in the church. And we need to remind ourselves that it's not loving in any way to shy away from the truth with our wives, our children, our churches. It's not loving to shy away from the truth, even though we will be tempted to do that sometimes. That's the ditch on one side. The ditch on the other side is that, um, you know, men can sometimes become way too domineering. You know, men can become so, so unlike Jesus instead of leading with love and with sacrifice and with gentleness and with care. You know, we just we're just going to make decisions. Right? We're just going to get bossy and macho. Listen, sometimes men can take that so far, they can become abusive. And I just want to say publicly, like, man, when men become abusive and they start to misuse their positions of leadership and authority, it is ungodly and it is sinful and it is wrong. And I'm sorry if you have been part of a church experience where you have been mistreated or abused or some authoritative male has manipulated you, I, I pray that the Lord will keep our elders from doing that. Please pray for us. In fact, if you read 1 Peter chapter 5, 
one of the qualifications of an elder is to lead in a way that's not domineering. And so if we start to go down this domineering path, like we become unqualified as elders in our church. So bottom line is we want our elders in our church to lead like Jesus, being full of grace and truth like Scott preached last Sunday. In grace, we want to be tender and patient and long-suffering and forgiving and loving. In truth, we never want to back down from saying what God has said to his people. So by God's grace, we will display both grace and truth as we apply the biblical teaching that only men should be pastors in the church. I want to wrap up by giving you just a minute, 60 seconds, to just reflect on the teaching of God's word that you've heard today. I want you to just, maybe you bow your head, maybe you close your eyes, maybe you just have a moment of reflection. And I just want you to listen to what God is saying to your heart today through his word, through his Holy Spirit. Open your heart up to him and after 60 seconds, I'll close us in a word of prayer and then give us a a couple reminders as we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your great love, your mercy that you have given to sinners like us that we sung about earlier. Praise you for the baptisms that we got to celebrate in the first service. Thank you, Lord, for your perfect word. Lord, um, I pray that you would teach us to cherish your word, that it would be sweet to us that we would learn to trust you Lord even in the times where the teaching of your word may be less than preferable and so Lord um, I pray now specifically for the elders of our church that we would submit to your word keep our character in check Lord let us practice loving leadership that looks like Jesus Lord Jesus, we want to follow you as the head of our church. Lord, I want to pray for anybody in this room who has been in some way hurt by sinful, unfaithful church leaders in the past, especially any women in this room that have been hurt by male leaders. I pray, Lord, healing for their soul and that their confidence would rest fully in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would let wounded people be loved well in our church. I also pray, Lord, that you would keep us from fear, give us courage, give us confidence to speak your word into uh, the lives of our 
people who are here knowing with full confidence that as we trust your word, uh, we will reap the benefits of trusting and obeying you. Lord, I, um, yeah, I, I thank you so much for the wonderful blessing it is to be one of the pastors here. Please have your hand of protection on the rest of our elders, the future elders that you may raise up in our church. We want to honor you, Lord Jesus, as our good chief shepherd. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.